This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. This week, for the second week in a row, we get to talk about a bunch of awards nominations immediately after they happen, which is just like kind of my favorite thing of awards season. Uh, the SAG Award nominations have come out just immediately before we recorded this. Uh, this week, we also got the Critics' Choice nominations, which is a whole other list of fascinating things to talk about. Uh, and we also are going to get into the ongoing Oscar host drama, which may or may not result in no host. We'll see exactly whoever wants to take the job. And in the second half of this episode, we're going to share Richard's interview with Marielle Heller, the director of Can You Ever Forgive Me, a movie that we kind of can't stop talking about and have all had a lot of affection for. So that'll be fun to listen to. Uh, but first, let's start with the SAG Awards. Uh, maybe There's a lot of surprises to talk about, which seems like it happens every year with the SAGs. I wanted to start by the outstanding performance by a cast in motion picture, which is essentially their equivalent of Best Picture. Guys, what's, what's the deal with Bohemian Rhapsody? Are we going to have to keep talking about this? It's almost as if the Screen Actors Guild was like, Richard, you now have to watch this movie (laughs) 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 that you have been avoiding studiously for over a month. I finally saw it last week. Okay, I gotta say, Rami Malek is very, very good in this movie. And I went in and being like, eh, he's not going to be that good. He's very, very good. There's a lot of issues with the movie and like, you know, Hillary outlined them aplenty in an earlier episode. But um, I understand some of the nominations. I don't understand the ensemble nomination um at all i've not gotten off the bradley cooper train i'm still on the bradley cooper train but i'm like rami Malek could be like a sidecar or something like that that i am for best actor you mean yeah yeah i get it i do so but you you can't figure out how it made it into the ensemble category which uh you know is presumably not just rami Malek's performance and then they liked it so much they nominated him twice I mean, the other members, the guys who play the other members of Queen are very affable. And then you've got like Tom Hollander doing something, you know, there's and and Lucy Boynton is actually very good in the film. But like, who knows what happens inside the the mind of a SAG nominee, nominator. But, uh, you know, sometimes I think they're like, oh, that movie has a lot of people in it. I'll go ahead and nominate that. I don't know. I just I don't know how these ensemble nominations come through sometimes. How in the heck do you give three nominations to uh olivia coleman emma stone right. and rachel vice in the favorite and then not give them an ensemble award or or, or nomination it's just especially weird. because like like a star is born is kind of the three people that they nominated it kind of is lady gaga sam elliott and bradley cooper but the favorite you've got nicholas holt you've got joe all one you got these really funny small supporting parts there's so much right. going on in that 
Yeah, I wonder if it is that sort of like there's a lot of stars in this, or or or, or is there a kind of a spreading it around, or who knows, or maybe it's just we're probably overthinking it as usual. Uh, the way it makes sense in my head is like we've got a lot of people in this movie, but none of whom I could see giving a supporting actor nomination to. So let's just give it a, a like a you know I think of that for like crazy rich Asians. Though I could see like Michelle Yeoh getting an, a supporting nominee. Like there's a bunch of great minor roles in that film and Crazy Rotations makes a lot of sense to me in the ensemble category. And so like if you liked the other people in Bohemian Rhapsody who are fine, honestly, just fine, then I yeah, I guess. I get it. I don't know. I also always wonder with films that weren't produced in the United States about union members, because um, it seems possible that some of these people are not SAG members. Uh, and same with Roma, I think Nicole Sperling was pointed out uh, this morning that uh, Netflix kind of always acknowledged they'd have an uphill climb with that one because the cast is not SAG members, which I, I can see the argument for that. Roma got no nominations. It's probably worth noting. Yeah, but I kind of didn't expect it to, you know, for, for, the, yeah. for that reason and others. Um, I think the the Bohemian Rhapsody thing, I mean... Yes, again, this is like the actors union voting on this. So like maybe their concerns are a little bit less economic, but like it's a huge hit. Um, You know, I think that you can't really discount the fact that that holds some appeal. I mean, if you look in other categories like Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place, like like there are like box office movies that resonated because maybe either more people saw them or they just kind of want to support movies like that that are doing well, despite, you know, the current realities of releasing a film that isn't a superhero movie. Well, and I guess maybe there is this idea that it's like, it's an ensemble film, to Joanna's point, you know? Mm-hmm. It's got a bunch of actors in it, and it's yeah. fun, and it did well at the box office, versus, all right, here's somebody really, like, you know, one specific performance to to pull out. And then how about Beale Street, though? I mean, being, being Regina King is a very obvious absence here on the supporting. I mean, this, this supporting actress list is very interesting. It's wild. And the, the Regina King omission... Considering that she's just coming off a weekend when she won L.A. Film Critics, San Francisco Film Critics, and Toronto Film Critics Awards. She did not win San Diego because they're lunatics. But, I mean, they, they gave it to uh, Nicole Kidman for Boy Race, which is funny. But, you know, she's I, – I don't know. Does she still feel the front runner? She does to me. But yeah. it's very, very strange that not only – did Emily Blunt get in there for A Quiet Place? Which, fine, she's great in that movie. That was a big popular movie. Yeah. But Margot Robbie for Mary, Queen of Scots. I mean, I think she's has her moments in that movie, but like that is a wild, weird nomination. Consider If Saoirse had gotten nominated for Best Actress and then also Margot, I'd be like, okay, they just like that movie. Yeah. But not having yeah. Saoirse right. yeah, in there. Yeah, how do you... I know. I mean, because Margot, like, look, she's great. The movie... You liked the movie more than I did. It's a tough role. I mean, it's just a weird, hard role. And, and I guess maybe they're, they're feeling empathetic about that, but like you don't walk out of there necessarily going like holy cow like margot robbie (laughs) i mean that's the thing is like i've walked out of movies and gone holy cow margot robbie and like this is just not that movie and (laughs) so then it feels like and so then it feels like is this i mean is this a relationship thing is this like someone who's well liked and has relationships and people are like remembering fondly past performances but like what's really interesting to me is regina king in and above the fact that she gave like a great performance in Beale Street and that she's on such like has such momentum from all these critics awards and other things this this award season, Regina King has been historically like a beloved figure of 
awards generally like she gets she gets emmy awards in the like for things that people like nobody really felt shows nobody really even talks about you know it's just like people love giving awards to regina king so her absence here is so strange and i think especially the beale street absence in ensemble is very strange because that seems like a movie made for the ensemble category and so like the fact that it got blanked across the board is very surprising to me. It's probably worth noting here kind of the Oscar or the award season pedant thing, which is that the SAG voting process is a little unusual. So they randomly pick um, about 2000 members of SAG to be the nominating committee every year. So those could be Oscar voters. Those could not be. We don't know who they are. And then to vote on the winners, all 116,741 SAG after members in good standing get to vote on the winners. So you've got kind of not a random selection of titles, but like those 2200 people could really be anyone. So I think accounting for anomalies in taste and things that we don't necessarily expect to show up at the Oscars. Uh, actors are a huge branch of Oscar voters, but we don't know that these are the same people at all. Yeah. And just anecdotally, like a few years ago, I a friend of mine is in SAG and she was picked to be on the nominating committee. And she she had like, you know, like the Eiffel Tower stack of screeners. And I know for a fact she did not get through all of them, you know. And and so I don't know, does Beale Street, for whatever reason, maybe it's just not a familiarity with the title or whatever, does that, Well, I don't know, not get watched? They've been too stingy with the Beale Street screeners. I'm going to say that. We we did have an issue with that in the office, didn't we? There's not enough Beale Street screeners. (laughs) Send Mike a Beale Street screener. It's true. Mine is is very precious. Let's talk about one thing that is good. There's a couple things that are good. Black Klansman. I love that Black Klansman has so much momentum in award season. It's just rolling along. And and it's lovely. It's actually really great to see John David Washington here. And it's really great to see it in Ensemble. I was not sure how this wild movie was going to fare. And I think that it's really cool that it's doing well. And then I'm also happy to see Sam Elliott in here in supporting. Yeah. It's funny. You take what you want to take from these nominations, right? So when I see Regina King's name missing, I'm like, that. it doesn't matter. I, I'm still convinced she's going to win the Oscar, let alone get nominated. I, I'm still convinced she's going to win. But I see John David Washington's name on here and I'm like, oh, I feel like this cements a nom- like an Oscar nomination for him. Like that, you know, like he was already, you know, got the Golden Globe nomination. We were already like talking about that. But I was like, this feels feels like this is it he's he's gonna get it and that's really fun i still feel like john david washington is maybe the most vulnerable in that list and i don't know why i guess because he's young and hasn't had like the breadth of career that a lot of the other best actor contenders have had um because i do feel like ethan hawk is still hovering on the sidelines here he didn't get a globes nomination which we talked about now doesn't have a sag nomination which is tough but the um, huge amount of critical love for first reformed i think will still push it somewhere so I, i'm keeping an eye on him but i'm with you mike that i didn't necessarily see this black clansman resurgence coming because it came out in the summer and it felt like people had stopped talking about it but it's been really great to see it does seem though that the other four are kind of locked in yeah do we think christian bale bradley cooper rami malek and vigo rami malek locked in that's i mean again we keep underestimating bohemian rhapsody so i should stop saying i'm telling you he's very good in this movie (laughs) i mean i'm just looking at the 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 critics choice awards nominations which uh, you know have seven people in best actor they have hawk Ryan Gosling for First Man and Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate. Those three, I think, are kind of swings. But yeah, the other uh, four, it's like, yeah, that feels yeah right. I think I think that for, for with any certainty, I think that we can probably bet that Black Klansman is going to get a Best Picture nomination. And that I think Adam Driver is for sure getting a Supporting Actor nomination. That's yes. really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think so, too. Uh, should we talk about like uh, our surprise... For Timothy Chalamet, a couple things. Just just a footnote. I don't want to like you know kick dirt on anyone, but like 
this time last year, you know, like Timothy, when we were talking about this, we were talking about how excited his people were for Beautiful Boy next year and how they were going to run him in like leading. Like it was like a whole thing. And now, I mean, I was surprised to even see his name on this uh, SAG nomination list uh, and in the supporting category. I mean, I think he's getting nominated and I kept being skeptical that it would hold because that movie seemed to not have a presence the way that Black Landsman or A Star is Born have. But uh, he keeps showing up. I think the thing about Timothy Chalamet is he acts his ass off in that movie. It's a really good juicy role he does a great job you you see him in a new light and it's just that the movie isn't didn't rise to people's hopes for it you know i think they thought that the movie would come together and work better overall and that that would lift him to like a win and instead i think he's he's very likely nominee um you know rightly so but it's not it's not Timothy Chalamet's fault that the movie didn't hang together i think no i mean if you look at the the two boy movies beautiful boy and boy erased both of them were, in some respects, kind of festival flops this fall. Like, yeah. Beautiful Boy way more so than Boy Erase. Boy Erase people were like, yeah, it's, you know, it's respectable. But, like, right. people really did not like Beautiful Boy. Yeah. But everyone kept Partly because it was hyped, too, I think. The oh, totally. Did not help it. And, you know, I didn't help it. I, they screened it for me in the summer, and I was like, Timothy Chalamet's going to win if they run him in supporting. Like, I was totally <laughs> bullish on it, uh, and then was sort of mystified when the reaction was not quite what I expected it to be. But, you know, throughout all of that, people have kept coming back to, but Timothy's good. Yeah, but Timothy's good, and he does charming things. He's good at press, and like he's just like people like him. And, and it's just a lot of goodwill around mm-hmm. a, a young new movie star, you know, totally. which, which is what he feels like. And I think that's similar for Rami. It's like these these are you know Hollywood needs people like that who are, and frankly, Bradley Cooper. You know, yeah. the, all these people are in interesting transitions in their career where Hollywood's like rooting for them to get to the next level because somebody's got to be at that level, <laughs> you know, yeah. or yeah. this whole thing's gonna fall apart. I wonder if there's also any like actorly support for Rami Malek, where there's like you put up with Brain Singer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you got him fired off of the movie. Yeah. Like that is some drama. I mean, yeah, it feels like Rami Malek was like, this is a movie that was plagued by so many problems and like so many fits and starts and lead actors dropping out and stuff like that. And it feels like it took Rami Malek to actually get this movie done. Uh, you know, getting rid of a problematic director and just like sort of pushing it through to the end and the whole thing just hinges on the whole movie hinges on him and like what he does with those teeth. It's interesting to me because uh, maybe I'll stop talking about Bohemian Rhapsody because like Richard maybe is rolling his eyes so hard that it, that it hurts him. <laughs> But like, no, he's just checking the email. Don't worry. I, uh, <laughs> I will just say this one last thing because I'm like no huge Rami Malek fan generally. But I went up and like I looked up like footage of Freddie Mercury giving interviews after I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, and I was like, yeah, he's not he's not doing like the most pitch perfect imitation, but he's captured something, and that's just like it's really impressive. I think it's especially impressive like like with Timothy Chalamet when maybe the material doesn't rise to meet the performer, but you can just walk away like satisfied with that performer regardless. You know what I mean? And maybe that's what the SAGs are for, is for like, okay, this is just about like, this is, we're just here to talk about acting. And that's why like, you know, to circle back to the ensemble nominations, like, that's the closest that the SAG has to a Best Picture nomination, right? Like, kind of, because they don't have that category. And so, so they wind up honoring a film that, in their view, you know, is Best Picture because of all the people in it. And that's just like a slightly interesting, you know, different angle on the whole process. I want to go back to Supporting Actor for a second, because unlike Supporting 
actress, which I think is weird, and I still think Regina King is going to win. Um, this feels like it could be the Oscar lineup, but there's two big question marks for me. I mean, maybe Michael B. Jordan holding out hope for him for Black Panther is too much to hope for at this point because he keeps not showing up in precursors, but that still seems possible. And then Sam Rockwell, who got the Golden Globes nomination for Vice and isn't here. Um, it makes me wonder, A, uh, if he's going to sneak in for Oscar, and B, what happened with SAG and Vice? They nominated Christian Bale and Amy Adams, but I really thought it would be in for Ensemble, um, and they didn't go for it. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I Sam Rockwell does feel like the kind of other spoiler there, certainly not Steve Carell. But if you talk about those four performances, who really has passed it in terms of ensemble? I don't know. It might be too inside baseball, but like Annapurna keeps moving the embargo for Vice like later and later for the Is re- this our reviews. second week in a row of being like, can we talk about Vice yeah. yet? So it's now next <laughs> week for reviews. There clearly is some lack of confidence in, in, in how critics are going to kind of, you know, talk about that movie. And yet it's still you know, holding on. I think that like Mike, you said something really smart last week about how part of it is that late release making guilds and press associations and everything feel kind of special for having seen it. Yes. You know, and so maybe that's still a part of it, but I don't know. I also for think... For some reason is working for Vice and not maybe working for Beale Street, or in this case didn't work for Beale right. Street. So right. everything is... Anyway, yeah. Yeah, but it's also just like, you know, inter- it's, with Bale especially, it's just like two... It's, it's an actor just like really just like doing a big capital A acting, mm-hmm. which is also like, well, well, Sam Rockwell is doing that too. So like, why isn't, you know, I don't know that movie. I feel like the narrative about that movie still has yet to really coalesce. And maybe that's putting too much weight on what critics have to say. But like, there's a missing part of the way that vice is being looked at. Christian Bale, Christian Bale has really successfully built a brand for himself as like heroic athletic actor. You know, like he will do whatever it takes, gain 30 pounds, lose 20 pounds, you know, like put up all the prosthetics you want will will transform himself into whatever it is. Um, You know, he's the dark knight of like acting. So but I do think that once you get beyond and then Amy Adams, of course, is like everybody loves Amy Adams. She's she's always great in everything. She kind of gets nominated like always. Um, Sam Rockwell, I think a lot of us were surprised. And then beyond that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I see like a totally amazing ensemble, but then again, you know, <laughs> there's some other cases here where I'm not sure I see that either. But I, I, I wonder if like Christian ends up taking up a lot of the oxygen for that ensemble, and that 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 ultimately this is like a another Christian Bale heroic, you know walk across the well stage. he's gone so deep that no one knows what his actual accent is anymore and i don't think <laughs> yeah, he does right. he's really lost himself you in gotta the listen to that recording where he yells at everybody <laughs> unless that was another performance <laughs> who knows <laughs> i think he had a pseudo american accent in that clip if i because we were talking about this this morning like i think he was kind of sort of in character while he was screaming at that dp well that's because isn't isn't it true that christian bale this is my memory that he gives most of his interviews around the project in the accent of the project that's what he did for batman man anyway he's like I, I think he said i don't want to confuse children so i'm using my american accent oh all of those children um, who love the dark knight rises and love watching interviews about the dark knight rises. <laughs> mother show me the christian bale interview again <laughs> mother i really enjoyed working on this <laughs> do we want to talk about tv at all i don't know if we do this is Joanna's uh, key moment where she makes us talk about t- <laughs> Joanna's TV corner. It's half a TV uh, award. Can I know? ask a like, question about television? Uh, sure thing. 
the Kaminsky method is not actually a real television show that exists, right? Like that's, that's just something <laughs> it's that, something they that, invented so they could give Alan Arkin another award. Right. Um, I think I was just talking to Todd Vanderbuff about this on Twitter, and I think honestly the Kaminsky method is benefiting from this, you know, because it just came out on Netflix, and I genuinely think it's benefiting from people cannot remember what they watched a month ago because there's too much television, but they're like, oh, I just saw that. Yeah, I like Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Okay, like genuinely, I think that that's Ozark. I cannot explain. You'll have to explain that to me, Richard, because you're a bigger Oz- you're a bigger Ozark fan than I am. But uh, the Kaminsky method, I I think that's recency bias coming through. Ozark is just kind of easy. Like it just it. I mean, the, the Julia Garner nomination is wild because it, it's a very grating performance, and it, well, it's also the character. But you know, I, I don't know. I guess I, I I kind of thought that the SAGs as opposed to even the Emmys, but certainly the Hollywood Foreign Press, like, I thought they were, like, a little bit less, like, dad TV. But, I don't know, maybe maybe this year, everyone, they were just like, ugh, yeah, like, just give it to the, those, th- you know, nice Netflix shows that are sort of easy to watch. Escape at Danamora is not easy to watch. No. I guess it's not on Netflix either. I don't know that I consider Ozark easy to watch, because, like, it's very harrowing in places, very grim. I stopped I watching it because it bummed me out, like, every yeah. single time it came on. I was I was out. But its stakes are sort of like comfortably positioned in a place. Like it's not, it's not really like pushing any envelopes or anything. I mean, yeah, it's like stressful in the way that Breaking Bad was stressful, but like less alienating in terms of its artistry. Like I don't know. It. I like the show for the reasons that like I can imagine someone you know being like, oh yeah, sure, you know, why not? It, it's that kind of show. Now I'm like, but Sharp Objects isn't easy to watch. But maybe it's more that they're they're these kind of heavy dramas, prestige dramas in the kind of that you could have imagined from 2000 to 2010. Yeah. Except frequently they have women in the leads. Ozark is an antihero show. I mean, that's right. kind of like yeah. De Rigueur or you or was recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. It feels like something from a from five years ago. Absolutely, Joanne. I know you were excited for uh, Emma Stone getting nominated for Maniac, which it seems I was. Like, like Richard's the last Ozark defender. You're the last Maniac defender out there. Am I the last? I, I, I think she's brilliant on that sh- on that show. She's great in it. Like the issues that you know, Richard and I talked about both Maniac and Ozark on our Still Watching podcast that you can listen to. Uh, Mani- and I talked to Julia Garner for actually for Maniac, uh, uh, but you know, the Maniac issues that we had, I think, if I recall, Richard were uh, maybe Emma Stone's co-star, not Emma Stone. We really liked Emma Stone's performance, and I really love that show, like all around her. So. Um, you know, yeah, I'm here for the double Emma Stone nomination. Why not? There's a lot of fun double nominations. Emily Blunt. Yeah, all these uh, people who I, I at least think of as redheads, Emily Blunt, Amy Adams, and Emma Stone all got um, double nominations. Emily Blunt, the only one who got them both for movies, which is wild. Emily Blunt is a redhead? I don't, like, in Devil Wears Prada, I think she's a redhead. Oh, okay. I think that's where that comes from. And, like, she and Amy Adams played sisters in Sunshine Cleaning, so they've always been linked in my brain. Anyway. Speaking of uh, Emily Blunt, uh, her husband, John Krasinski, is nominated for Best Actor for Jack Ryan. Okay, let me talk about Jack Ryan. (laughs) I have not seen Jack Ryan, but I know this. Jack Ryan, well, I believe this to be true, that Jack Ryan was far and away Amazon's most successful show this year. That a million gajillion people watched that show and just no critics talked about it. And it's I hope one of those, someone like, at Amazon is terrified now that you have their internal documents and you've like cracked the code. Because I don't. <laughs> there's there's ratings data out there. Like the the rap has a write up about this. You can go Google this. This is true that like so many people watched Jack Ryan, and I don't know if it's just because like 
you know, it's based on air, airport airplane books and you're on Amazon, you're gonna watch an airplane book show. I don't know. But like, that was a huge show that we like that kind of flew under the critical radar because it's just sort of like, I don't know, popcorn TV in a way. So I watched every single episode of that show in one sitting on like some well, sort of sound Sunday. Like a good idea. <laughs> I could not tell you a single thing about what happens on that series, even though I've seen every episode. But it, I just, I just think it's interesting that, like, you know, a month or two removed from having binged the show or whoever, however people watch the show, that like when in this nominating process they were like, oh yeah, Krasinski for that. Like it just, it, like having seen all of it, I'm like that would never come to mind to like nominate him. But well, maybe can I go like back him. to my theory that I just came up with about sure. ten minutes ago? Yeah. Um, I think he's another one that people are rooting for because yeah. they need someone to fill that sort of, you know, in that role. It's like, it's like whatever. I don't know. Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford and Kiefer Sutherland. I'm, I'm mixing up the different. If those guys had all directed a hit movie. Yes. In the same year. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you want, you want a guy like him to come out of comedy. Like that's a Tom Hanks move too and become, but, but then become like an action star. I don't know. I, I, I that's what I see in this is like, it's, especially with the men for some reason, there's this kind of like, all right, we need our next generation of like big A-list stars. Let's, let's give them a boost. I don't know. Yeah. No, I could mean, or maybe that's sense. the, there maybe people, that's what they want for themselves. And so they are idolizing, I don't know, or a mix. Yeah, it's fun to be on team Emily Blunt and John Krasinski, and clearly they liked A Quiet Place enough to give Emily Blunt a supporting actress nomination yes. for that movie, which I still haven't seen it because I'm afraid, uh, but it felt like she was the lead. I was confused by that for sure. If there is a female lead, it's her. Actually, if yeah, if there's a lead of the movie, it's her. That's true. Just category fraud all over the place. I need to talk just really quickly. I just need to run down my most baffling, the most baffling category to me. It's TV. Uh, so I'm sorry, but no, uh, it. it's outstanding performance by a male actor in a television movie or miniseries. We have Antonio Banderas and Genius Picasso, Darren Criss, of course, assassination of Johnny Versace, Hugh Grant, a very English scandal. Okay. Anthony Hawkins, King Lear, Bill Pullman, the center. These are not like miniseries or movies or performances. Three of those are not ones that we've been like talking that much about in the awards context. And so I think the center, I think Jessica Biel got nominated for the center at the SAGs last year. I seem to remember her popping up and me and I had not been paying attention to that show at all at that point. Uh, so clearly they're paying attention to it. And, you know, for we had we did our podcast on the center earlier this year that I helped with and I watched it. Bill Pullman's good on it. I mean, he's not Darren Chris in Assassination of Johnny Versace, but, you know, no one is. That's why he'll probably win. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, fine. Like, Anthony Hopkins, Bill Pullman, and Antonio Madera's can have their nominations. I'm not, like, begrudging them that. It's just, like, it's <laughs> it's not the usual lineup that we've been seeing. And that's just what's kind of interesting to me. This is just a make good for Hugh Grant not getting nominated for Paddington, too, the way he deserves. How weird is it that Henry Winkler and Bill Hader are both nominated for lead in Barry, my favorite show? Well, of because I, I'm just looking. I don't think they have supporting for television. Is that possible? Oh, okay. Oh, and that's how you get like a Julia Garner. Uh, it's so weird, though. Yeah, yeah. And Alex Borstein for Mrs. Maisel and Brosnan. yeah, who like won the supporting Emmy and Tony Shalhoub and stuff like that. That's interesting. So. I wonder how often a supporting can actually beat a lead, especially when you're in the same show, which there yeah. seems to be yeah. a fair amount of that going Just, on. As an aside, if, if people haven't read Emily Nussbaum's review of marvelous mrs Maisel season two it's a quite quite a pan uh it's it's worth reading it's mm. i mean it's, it's just an interesting kind of counter narrative to to what else has been written and joanna we can beat our own dream briefly for the critics choice nominations if we want to or hang our heads in shame um i feel pretty good about a lot of the nominations i was looking the supporting actor list is essentially the same as sag plus michael b jordan um so you know that was something that got called correctly there's a lot of love for first man which we all know it made me very happy uh anything that really stood up for you 
Katie single-handedly whipped all the Critics' Choice votes for... Um, <laughs> I am the Nancy Pelosi of, uh, <laughs> of the Critics' Choice Awards. It was so interesting, like, filling out this ballot in the first place. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to say that we're like, we nominate three different things for every category, and that just feels so, like, liberating. I'm like, I don't have to pick just one? How fun. Or And you don't have to pick ten, which is like, it's like... That's a nice middle ground. Yeah, exactly. And and so you just like you get to put in, you know, you get to put in your like think they'll win and then also like, uh, but I really liked this. It has no shot at winning, you know, but I'm going to put it in here anyway. Um, and that's why I think you get such like a weird wide mix at the Critics' Choice because I think some of those like long shots wind up getting in there by accident almost. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not displeased by what we've come up with here. Well, I um, love that you guys got Yelitsa Aparicio in there for Roma. I did that. Yeah, no, you did that. Me. Well done. <laughs> and Tony Collette for Hereditary, another best actress. Yeah, Tony Collette I was really pleased to see. Yeah, exactly. And there's just a lot of like genre. I mean, like we there are genre categories for Critics' Choice, um, you know, so it's fun to like uh, play in those categories. But I think that also winds up what that what that makes us do I, or made me do anyway is consider po- more populist cinema side by side with uh award cinema and i was i was sort of messaging katie and i was like am i allowed to vote for this in this category like the the boundaries sort of blur a bit more when you're considering them all together um did i just make an argument that we should have a popular movie oscar yeah, um, see that see it all comes full circle maybe i don't well, know there's but, some great you know. picks in the comedy categories i mean i love seeing lakeith stanfield here for um, Sorry to Bother You. And I love seeing Charlize Theron for Tully. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... I, yeah, I, I do think that that kind of opens it up a little bit and, and makes it a little more fun. I will say from my own point of view, when I was like, you know, I went, I did it... I This is my first year doing a ballot, so I'm sorry like if I'm talking about it too much. But I did it from like top down. And when you get to the bottom is where all the genre stuff is. And it actually made me go up and change some of my stuff at the top. So like, you know, if I nominate Lakeith down in comedy, I'm like... Ah, you know what maybe he just deserves it for the main category too you know yeah. so like Why not? it's it's just um it's an interesting sort of way to look at things i'm just sorry we couldn't get a comedy nomination for blockers i tried i was i tried so hard but, you know. <laughs> but game night game night got in there right so um, yeah game night got in rich mcadams got in for who game are you night. going for for blockers who would you have put in there john Singer? i put um and rich not the last name geraldine is her first name um who is one of the daughters i think i put oh, her yes. in for actress in the comedy yeah. yeah, yeah, and I put Leslie Mann in there because I just really like what she did. So. Oh, and I put Ike Barinholtz in there because I thought he was great. Geraldine Vis Viswan Viswanathan Viswanathan. Sorry, I'm tor- yeah. I'm butchering her name, but she's so awesome in that movie. That's a great. She's awesome that's in a that great movie. Nomination. Next time you but, have to whip harder. Can I? Can I? <laughs> as, as you both were were on the nominating committee for this, um, who do I have to talk to about the? Best action movie Ready Player One nomination. <laughs> Who is responsible? <laughs> that wasn't your write in vote. You didn't like sneak in and put that in there, Richard. <laughs> I'm just like, remember that Steven Spielberg movie that came out this year? I mean, Widows also got a best action movie nomination, and I love Widows, but that's not an action I don't movie. I think it's an action movie. No. The, the pick There's felt guns really slim. and explosions. Well, this is what I'm talking about, the like. The, yeah, the Pixies did feel slim in action. I just feel like it's Mission Impossible's like yeah, well, game or Black Panther, I know? guess, could yeah. sneak in there. But yeah. yeah, 
So let's talk briefly. And again, uh, we're going to start having a conversation about Oscar hosts. And it's very possible that by the time you listen to this, they will have picked an Oscar host. This is what's happened to us last week when Kevin Hart had been chosen. And then by the time uh, many people heard last week's episode, he had already quit. Um, the latest report, I think, from Variety was that the Academy is considering having no host, both because uh, no one wants to do it and they keep trying to get the ceremony to be shorter. I'm kind of okay with this, even though it feels sad and weird that no one wants to host the Oscars. Do you guys feel like they have a better option at this point than to just get a bunch of different people to take on hosting duties and move on? Well, I think part of it is that, you know, we may see however many minutes of an opening monologue and then some, you know, interstitial jokes throughout the evening. And it seems like, okay, it's just the X amount of work, but like, it actually is like a lot of preparation and you have to assemble writers and all that stuff. And it's now, you know, two weeks from Christmas. I just don't. And so the awards show is in what, like, little over two months um there's just not a lot of time and so maybe part of the reason that people are reticent to accept the job now is well yes because it's embroiled in controversy but also like there's just like it is it going to be good you know so maybe that's the thinking is that they're like you know wh- why bother having like kind of like half-hearted or um whatever you know replacement host and maybe we'll just try a different format have I already um, quoted Richard Rushfield's tweet about this? Because it just, just haunts me. He just said, who wants to be next in the Ampus barrel? Worst case scenario, your career is destroyed. Best case scenario, you get blamed for a boring show and like dropping ratings. Like, what's the upside? What I think is the latter is really the, the the sticking thing where it's like, you know, if like you could do a great job and, and, and the ratings would have nothing to do with you, but you'd still be pinned to that, you know? Right. And so the only thing to do, it's like with the White House Correspondents Dinner where they've finally given up on it because it was like the only thing you could do is be somebody like Michelle Wolf who's just like, well, I'll use this as a kamikaze mission to get better known. I mean, <laughs> and really. it worked. Yeah, that's the only you know otherwise. But there's no point in like trying to do a good show. Like you can't win. On the question of do we need an Oscar host? Um, like originally, I was of the mind that like we should just have someone come do an opening musical number, uh, and that person should definitely be Hugh Jackman and maybe Anne Hathaway. Um, and then and then just like have people read categories. But you're right, Richard, that like you need someone there to like be steering the ship in case some like if something does go wrong like because we we have all forensically broken down what happened with the moonlight thing and jimmy kimmel had like a huge part to play in sort of trying to right the chaos you know and and sort of and did a good job and got it yeah did a really good job and so like you know i you know and and occasionally like an oscar host will come out and like comment on something you know it's not always like great comedy but they'll be like oh hey that just happened that's interesting you know and that that makes it feel like sort of interactive in a way that just I think a, a rolling roster of, of you know people reading out nominations doesn't doesn't have the same effect I don't know I like I don't think it'd be the worst thing in the world for no one to host and I also completely agree that it is a lose 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 situation but also like since we since we talked about it last week like I guess what's just astonishing to me in all of this uh, that happened with Kevin Hart I will just say is uh, that nobody did a background check on this i don't know it's well just someone like, said that they did and that they were you know they took a calculated risk or whatever but i just find it so interesting that they apparently insisted that he apologize he refused to apologize quit and then apologized so it wasn't really an issue about apologizing it was really an issue of him just being like i don't actually want to deal with this like it's a huge pain and it's not worth it i mean that's what's really kind of scary about the whole thing 
the 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 coolest um, idea that I heard was David Lynch, and I would add Laura Dern. I just want. <laughs> I just think... But or or like maybe it should just be just start the show with like Kendrick Lamar doing the song from Black Panther, and then like have you know like the way LL Cool J does the Grammys, you know, just kind of like he'll just like come in show every once in a while, be kind of cool, minute. say a few th- words, and you know keep it rolling. Open with Kendrick Lamar and Lady Gaga somehow like duetting, like putting those songs together. Right. It might be an abomination, but I would want to watch. Yeah, that. we don't need like a corny um, late night skit like a Billy Crystal. You know, that's a long time ago. Also, like. What are the jokes this year? What's in that monologue? Everything's awful. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like I don't really know. Like, like a lot of Wakanda Forever jokes, I guess. Yeah, and like if you don't have a white host. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing about the you know. So I wrote I wrote something about Kevin Hart and how it kind of just felt like an, another sort of you know piece of the narrative of like the Oscars is not really caring about like gay viewers, even though they're sort of a central part of their 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 core fan base. And and something I did not talk about in the piece, and I should have, and I regret, and 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 also just is, which is such a bigger part of this conversation is, is that like, it was the it was an good, exciting choice for them to hire, you know, a person of color to host a show, and Kevin Hart for all of his bad tweets and sentiments in stand up specials, like, is in a large part, you know, like if he's very successful, like he was a he was a fine choice in a way, and I. I don't, I would have, I mean, personally speaking, like as one gay person, I would have been fine if he had literally just been like, here's what I've done in the seven years since that last tweet. Every, you know, like I've done this, I've done that, like everything. And and, and I would have had no problem with him hosting yeah. the show. But that's my point, Richard. Like, yeah. I think that's what everyone figured would happen. And yeah. he just decided like it wasn't worth it to, to deal with the bullshit. Yeah. Which, which is, I don't know what that says. It says to me two things. One is like public life is so toxic right now because of the Twitter, you know, mobs that people are just kind of like it's just not people don't feel like dealing with it if they if they don't have to and secondly like hosting the oscars is just not that big of a deal or or there's not enough good stuff to get out of it to put yourself through it and and i'm, I'm not to defend whatever you know i i i don't want to defend bad tweets and stuff like that and i think that he should have i wish he had but i just find it interesting that like he didn't feel like doing it but then he did it kind of anyway and but still didn't do the show like he didn't fight to do the show is what is what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, and I don't I don't want to try to infer his psychology, but I think there is something that you know there was a particular vehemency with in the way that he 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 was sort of gone after you know, and I think that like yes, a part of that had to do with the fact that he is black, and I think that like you know a, a white comic who had had a similar you know you know record in the past in the recent past i i don't know that he, that he would have been treated you know in in this with quite the same intensity and maybe right. there was a part of kevin hart that was like fuck this like i like like i've I, he has he has he done interviews about these tweets you know i'm not defending what he said but like yeah, yeah, yeah. he has like that that, that that those things have been a matter of public record for a while yeah and um you know, maybe I'm part of the problem in terms of writing something about him, but like, I don't know. I, I could see from his camp being like, it, this. There's no way this is worth it, right? You know, well, that's yeah, yeah, the yeah. that's the the corner they back themselves into is they want someone who's big enough to draw an audience and, in theory, boost the ratings, but someone who's big enough to draw an audience doesn't need this. They don't have no incentive to put themselves through this. Like, what do you think Jimmy Kimmel is doing to avoid being like frog marched into the theater to do this? 
He already works for ABC. Like, they've got some control over him. That's a great question, honestly. Like, probably saying that there's not enough time to do it right, you know? It's like somebody Or, like, brought I up will Lin literally Manuel. quit if you make me try to host the Oscars again. Yeah. No, I mean, they can't. Like, Jimmy Kimmel is an important um, franchise for ABC. They can't make him do stuff he doesn't want to do, I don't, I don't think, you know? Um, but, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda, too. Like, cool idea. It is a little bit kind of accepting, like, all right, the Oscars are the Tonys now. Um but he would, I'm sure, want four months to, you know, to, to do something amazing. Like, he's not going to want to hash it together in, in 20 days. I mean, a, a toss-together musical number at the Oscars? Right? Like, that sounds yeah. horrible. Yeah. yeah. Hire Dan Harmon, who wrote the music for Hugh Jackman for one of my favorite Oscar musical numbers of all time. The Raider. I did and see the reader. <laughs> I rewatched that the other night, like after all of this. It's, it's so good. I assume Hughes just said no at this point. Like, there's no way they haven't asked him. He's doing like a whole international singing tour. That guy. He like he would he would have. I mean, yeah. Like if they had done that, asked him two months ago, he would have been for sure on board. I think. It's a shame that Anne Hathaway was so thoroughly burned by her hosting gig through no fault of her own. I think uh, I feel like she'd be a great Oscar host if she got to do it on her own, but. If I were her, I wouldn't do it again. I put Anne with the right person. She needs. Yeah, yeah. Give her, give her Hugh Jackman or yeah, like or Miranda. The name I I saw being floated based on no, no, nothing that she had said or anything was Maya Rudolph because she's hysterical and she can sing and like yes. that would have been great and people love her and uh, and she's a sort of child of the industry vaguely and you know but that it doesn't seem to be happening either. But they should think about that for next year. Yeah, get her and Martin Short. They had that variety show that. That was actually watched, pretty funny. Just, <laughs> yeah. uh, probably will never yeah. do it because their variety show was not watched by anyone, but that would be a great idea. I'm looking back at the list of like people who hosted in the 70s. Like There was one year when there was four hosts. It was Sammy Davis Jr., Bob Hope, Shirley MacLaine, and Frank Sinatra all hosting together. We could really get some interesting combos on this, and it would be in tradition. I think Bob Hope's hologram would be really good. Or Cord and Tish. Anyway, here we go. Sorry. My favorite realization, I guess, that like you wouldn't just take the gig just because it's high profile is when Tina and Amy uh, stepped down from hosting the Golden Globes when like everyone loved them and it was just like an amazing success. And they're like, yep, we did it well and we're done. And I was like, oh, why don't you just keep going? And they're like, no, why would we? And I was like, oh, fair point. Okay. So they should hire <laughs> us to host it because we would happily do it and put up with it, uh, but no one would watch for us. <laughs> In the Michelle Wolf model. You know. <laughs> yeah, just use it to make ourselves <laughs> famous. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on the Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to the Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. So, Richard, now we're going to share the interview you did with Marielle Heller. Um, she is in New York, I believe, editing her Mr. Rogers movie that's that's coming out soon with Tom Hanks, which is really exciting. So you guys get to meet up in person. Uh, how was she? Terrific. Uh, I, I, I was aided by the fact that I had met her at a party like a week you know, prior. And so we had something of a li- tiny rapport going. Um, but she's wonderful to talk to. She's very smart. She has a theater background like I do. I mean, she was much more successful in theater than I ever was. But, but, uh, yeah, she's just, a, she, and, and I think the most important thing is she loves Can You Ever Forgive Me? And she is very thoughtful about why she made the movie and, 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 and why she loves it still. Um, so that was great. So, yeah, I hope people enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Well, I'm thrilled to be sitting across the table on a Sunday morning with the great Marielle Heller. Marielle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 
we've been talking a lot on this podcast since I guess Telluride about this film and how much we love it. And we wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk with you as this award season gets kicked off. And how are you finding the experience thus far? I mean, it's been a kind of a ride, huh? It is kind of a ride. It's interesting. You know, I finished this movie almost a full year ago now. And so it's a weird thing to finally get to be sharing it with the world and having it come out there. And I feel a little more distance from it. I can kind of enjoy the movie again, which is a nice experience. Usually when you're editing a movie, you're so in it. All you can see is all the little details and all the little things you would change. And I'm having this experience of getting to watch the movie at Telluride or at Toronto. And it's almost like Oh, it almost feels like I didn't even make this movie. Like I get to just watch it and appreciate it and see the great performances and all of the things that I always enjoyed about it again. And then I get to share it with people. So it's kind of emotionally been sort of a nice experience of having the movie come out. It's obviously really been wonderful and slightly surprising that people have liked it so much and that it's doing as well as it is. I didn't know how this movie would be received. So the whole process has kind of it's been a it's been a nice time for me. It's felt it's felt good and it's felt like the movie is being taken in the spirit I would hope that it would be taken in. Are people responding to it in a way that you expected or have there been surprising reactions? Truthfully, I wasn't sure how Melissa McCarthy fans were going to feel about the movie because she is obviously so popular and people adore her and she's one of the funniest comedians we have in the US. And I didn't know how they would feel about her doing something so different. You know, I didn't know if there would be a feeling that when, like when you go see your favorite band and you want them to play their greatest hits and you don't want them to play their new stuff, their new experimental stuff. <laughs> like, is this the equivalent of that? And would her fans kind of reject it? But luckily, I feel like people who embrace Melissa embrace her for everything that she does and feel really excited to see this other facet of her. And I also worried, I suppose, that maybe people would view this movie that you'd have to know who Dorothy Parker was to enjoy the movie, which even though I never felt like that was true, I felt like feel like there's a lot to relate to in terms of Lee and Jack and the whole story. And I've been just pleasantly surprised that it feels like people see themselves in these characters, relate to them. And I guess the other thing that's been a nice surprise is it feels like people are hungry for this type of movie in a way that I didn't know was going to be true. I've heard more people than I can count say, oh, we don't make movies like this anymore. It felt like going to see an old movie in a way that I loved. So that's been really nice. Yeah, I mean, it is... I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but it's like a small movie. It's yeah. it's a it's a literary movie. It's um, it's a character drama yeah. piece with a lot of comedy in it, too. But it really is... This movie that's about human emotion and about the things that aren't said and about, you know, yeah, it's this very interior, small movie. There is a version of this story, of this movie, that is heavy on the kind of cynical comedy and just making these people like real losers. And, and this is not that movie, obviously. Yeah. Obviously, Jeff Whitty and Nicole Hall of Center wrote the script mm-hmm. and, and, and that's where this sort of tone starts. But then also you come in and the performances come in. What was the balancing act like of trying to make this story engaging and funny and sad, but also human? How 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 hard is that calibration? I mean, I think actually it all goes back to Lee's book, because if you read Lee's book, you get a real sense of her as a person where she is biting and you sense a real sadness to her life. But she's also so funny and a joy to spend time with. 
So it was always about finding that balance of somebody who has all of this baggage and all of this pain that she's bringing to the table, but who's got kind of the funniest take on the world as well and letting that come through. So and for me, the thing I was so attached to when I first got the script and I think was the thing that I kind of brought out even more so in the script was the relationship between Lee and Jack. I found that to be the the platonic love story to be the heart of the story. As much as the crime and the literary kind of caper of it is really fun, I felt like the way we get to know these characters and the way they find each other in this world to be the, the thing that really drew me to it. And then it ended up being the thing I wanted to focus the movie the most on, too. Yeah. And I think that something that I responded to and a lot of other like gay critics and audience members is that this is a story about two gay people, you know, in their 50s, mm -hmm. uh, having a relationship that is not about them being gay. It's just sort of that it's not incidental to their lives, but it's it's not the kind of core focus of the film. Right. How did you approach that as you know, I, as far as I'm aware, nobody among the three of you identifies as, you know, queer or whatever. It's like, I, yeah. I, you know, because it's it's handled so sensitively, whereas others, I think, have not done that well. I mean, what was your approach to that that side of the material? I think for me, it was something that really drew me to the story as well, where it felt so baked into who these people were. And the historical context was important to me. That was something that I felt it was important that we, in subtle ways without hitting people over the head, highlight that Jack is in the position he's in particularly because of the AIDS crisis. This is somebody who finds himself very alone. An aging gay man in New York City in 1991 would have lost most people he knows. And so it's not what makes him who he is, but it is the context for why he is in the position he's in, why he has no friends, why he's homeless, why he's living the life that he's living, sort of like the the floor has been pulled out from under him. Um, and he's sort of floating and he's been able to get by on his wit and charm for a long time. And that's sort of running out. And that Lee has a very different reason that she finds herself so alone. She's really pushed everybody away in her life and has all the anger of her kind of unrequited career that could have been very different that's weighing her down. So it was important to me that we sort of rooted in that context, but that it is really just it's really just the context for where our story begins. It's not what the story is about. And I think personally, I'm just tired of stories about white hetero cis men. So finding a story that wasn't focused on that and that that is the starting point felt oddly revolutionary to me in a way that felt very simple. Yeah. How did Melissa and Richard come on to this? I mean, I think the casting process were pretty different for both of them, but yeah. I'm just curious what the genesis is of that. So the project had had a previous life, as many movies do. It takes practically a miracle for a movie to get made. Um, so when the project was brought to me by Ann Carey, who was the producer who originally optioned the material from Lee, she knew Lee Israel, and it really was Ann Carey's baby. She had been shepherding this project for years and years. She had brought Jeff Whitty on. She had brought Nicole on. And the whole – when it had fallen apart, it felt like it was a project that wasn't going to happen. And then Melissa had read it and was interested in it. So Ann brought it to me. It was already at the place where it was like, Melissa is possibly interested in it. Read this. See what you think. Maybe we'll get the two of you together and you can talk about it and see if it's something you want to do. So basically, Melissa and I met and we had a great meeting. She had watched Diary of a Teenage Girl. We had we had actually already met 
socially before once or twice. So we had a little bit of context for each other. And we met to talk about Lee and we really agree. We just spoke the same language about her. And I think she had a sense from my first movie what sort of tone I would take with the movie. And so we sort of agreed together to sign on and to make the movie. So that is a very unconventional way to kind of mm -hmm. cast somebody because it right. wasn't like I was attached to the movie and then was looking for who was going to be the perfect person. The first time I read the script, I was reading it with Melissa in mind mm -hmm. and I couldn't imagine anybody else playing Lee. And then Finding Richard was a bit of a different process. I was really aware of the fact that it was all about figuring out who was going to work with Melissa then. And who is going to be this sort of perfect foil for her. And somewhere along the line, I decided that Jack should be English. He wasn't. The real Jack was not mm -hmm. English. But there was something funny to me about this, like, sophisticated English man who doesn't know anything about books. Because we always, as Americans, think English people are so much smarter than us. And I just thought there was something really funny about that. And, and it displaces him more because you're like, how did you get here? Like, him. You know, and New York yeah. is a city of of wanderers it's a you know it's a place where all of these people have made it their home and they how did they get here mm -hmm. it made sense something mm -hmm. about it just made perfect sense um so i went to richard with the script i mean that was a much more traditional way of approaching him he was somebody i wanted for the part for a long time and i had been a fan of his for forever from with nail and i and also Honestly, seeing him in Girls had reminded me of how wonderful he is. Well, we had him on the podcast, and he said that he got the Girls gig because Lena Dunham had seen him in Spice World when she was a kid. Oh, my God. And she had always so liked him funny. from that. So he's like, thank you, Spice World. <laughs> that is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. I had forgotten he was in Spice World. But yes, that is so funny. But yeah, that part he played on Girls was so unhinged and hilarious that I remember thinking, I don't know, I logged him in my head again. And then so I just approached him and I think I sent him the script on a Friday and spoke with him on Saturday morning and he said that he wanted to do it. So it was pretty instantaneous. And they only had a short time to talk to each other before they started filming, right? Which is really actually traditional. Yeah. I mean, you don't get to do a lot of rehearsals, sadly, on movies. If it was up to me because I come from theater, I would love to do weeks and weeks of rehearsals, but that's not really what you get to do. So my job ended up being making sure even though we only got to do one day of rehearsal with the two of them and we read through the script and we got to know each other a little bit was that with every scene whenever we would start the day or start a new scene i would make sure we got some really quality rehearsal time just in the beginning of the day and it's something that i like to do as an as a director which is just clear everybody out do a private rehearsal just me usually the dp the ad and the actors where we really get to live in the space because usually when you're filming in a place like new york the, the actors will never see the locations until you show up to shoot them right. so it can be their apartment and they've never seen it until the day they show up and then we're like make yourself at home this is your home <laughs> right it's really important to me that we take this that we kind of create this little sacred time at the beginning of each scene where we have a private rehearsal. We get to really work out how to live within the scene. I'm an actor originally. So for me, I feel like a lot of what I love about directing is working with actors and making sure that they feel really comfortable and that they get to work out all of their tough questions and that there's a safe space where they can say, you know, this line is feeling weird coming out of my mouth and I can rewrite it or we can talk through how the build of a scene happens and really get into the the darkest places of the scene in a private setting without 200 crew members staring at us. And so that when we come in to film it, it can happen pretty quickly, but that we've gotten to kind of do that rehearsal work on the day. Mm -hmm. 
I want to go back a little bit because, you know, you had The Diary of a Teenage Girl a few years ago and it was this big Sundance hit and, you know, very well reviewed. We saw a side of Kristen Wiig we'd never seen yeah. before. And, and then there was you, this, this, you know, first time director. I'm not naive enough to think that, like, once that premiered, all opportunity lay at your feet. <laughs> but, like, what do you do when you have a Sundance hit and you're like, what's next? Like, what is the thought process there? What is the actual process there? Well, it's a weird thing because, at least for me, I think I went through – that movie took eight years to make, all told. And I think I went through many years of sort of feeling like this underdog or like I was fighting to get this movie made. And and that sort of becomes your identity when you're an artist trying to pound on the doors of what feels like a big machine and get yourself heard. And then the movie happened – and I was so proud of it, and I was so proud of what we made. And then people actually liked it, and then it was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what What does this mean now? And then your identity changes because suddenly I was getting really great opportunities brought to me. But I think it's a scary thought about what your second movie will be because you start to view yourself, the longevity of your career, who you want to be as an artist, and how each step is going to kind of tell a bigger story about you. So I was being offered teenage girl movies, primarily. Mm -hmm. I was being offered a lot of sex comedies. I was being offered things that were all like women as prostitutes often because I think there was a sense also that the voices were starting to diversify. People were wanting movies from a female perspective, but also that I had made a movie with a lot of sex in it. So people thought that was something that I was going to be comfortable with. And so in all of these ways, I didn't want to become pigeonholed. Like I didn't want to be the teenage director. Because that wasn't why I made Diary. It wasn't because I somehow want to make YA movies. It was because it felt like an important story and voice that wasn't being told. And I related to her so deeply. And I had all of this baggage from my own teenagehood of feeling misunderstood that I wanted to tell. But then I felt like I had done it. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine doing a teenage movie that I loved nearly as much. So why would I try to do that again? So when this movie came my way... It was Ann Carey had been one of my producers from Diary, and she brought me this project. And she said, Melissa McCarthy might be interested. Nicole Holofcener is one of the writers, and it would be making it with me. So it was these three really smart women within the industry who I respected. And that was the first draw for me, honestly, was the idea of collaborating with a bunch of women that I loved and respected and then I read the script and I so loved Lee and thought, oh, we don't have characters like this. We don't have this this kind of brash, unlikable, quote unquote, which I hate that word, kind of asshole characters who we – who are women. We This is the type of character we would see as a man and we would never see as a woman. And so immediately I felt like, oh, that's pretty exciting. The thought of doing a movie – where we get to explore and live with this type of character, it felt really good. And I've lived in New York for a long time, so the thought of making a movie, I had made my first movie where I grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and now to make a movie in my second home felt really right. And it pushes you past, like, what you're saying. You sort of, It's different enough from Teenage Girl that you've now, I would think, shaken that association in a way. Now that can just be viewed as a discreet so. film. But you can say yeah. that with with hindsight. Well, of course, right. right. Yeah. At, at the time, it's like trying to figure out what the path is going to be is more complicated than that. But I think that that really speaks to what this movie is about. Can you ever forgive me? Um, again, I don't mean this in any negative way, but I saw the movie in, as a writer 
and I was like, oh my god, this is a fucking horror movie. Like, <laughs> in, fi- one, in 15 years, when I'm 50 years old, like, what am I going to, you know? Yeah. Um, I think and- any writer or artist relates to that feeling, too, of what is it to be 51, turn around and have someone tell you you're obsolete. Right. How do you what view do you do? the longevity of a career? Like, do you have any sort of design for it, or is it just... <sighs> I mean, I think it's... You know, I went to theater school, and I think the goal coming out of theater school was just to be able to pay your bills with your art. Like, that was the ultimate goal I could imagine. So at this point, I'm already feeling like, I'm doing pretty good. I sort of expected a life of artistic struggle for my whole life, if I'm being totally honest. I I viewed that with an almost romantic eye in a way that's probably unhealthy and that is fostered by a lot of bad plays or something. We never let go of that feeling of struggling to be seen, struggling to be heard, feeling like we as artists have to struggle with our own self at all times. So I think the life of an artist, the life of a writer is filled with pain. I think that's just true no matter how successful you are. And that's a depressing thing to say, but I think it really (laughs) is true. And Lee is sort of the epitome of that. You see how much she identifies with her writing as part of herself. And the fact that she hasn't been recognized for her true gifts is so painful for her. I mean, it really hurts her soul in a deep level. And she wasn't deluded. She was that talented. That's she the was thing. that yeah. talented. Yeah. And in a different life, in a different world, she could have been one of the great writers of the day. But she was wrong turns and the wrong bedside manner and the wrong whatever had led her to a place where she really was not appreciated for what she did. And I mean, I remember when we were working on the court scene with her. I was trying to come up with the worst sentiment she could have about herself when she really is the most down on herself. What is the worst thing she could say about herself? And it was, I think I've realized I'm not a real writer. Mm -hmm. And I think any artist, no matter what life you're living, no matter if you're living as a professional artist or an amateur artist or it's something that's deep in your heart and is your passion, we can all relate to that feeling of imposter syndrome and am I a real writer? Am I a real artist? What is it to be a real writer or a real artist? For me, I think I just want to constantly be challenged and feel like whatever I'm doing is pushing me artistically and that I'm finding new ways to grow personally through the art that I'm making. And so far, I'm feeling really good about that. I just wrapped a movie that I'm making about Mr. Rogers I'm working with Tom Hanks, and the project was very different from my first two movies. And I felt really artistically challenged in a great way. And so I don't know if I'll even keep directing forever. I don't know if I'll keep writing forever. I don't know what I'll do, but I just know that I'll keep trying to do things that are challenging me and that are making me feel like I'm pushing myself because I think as soon as you get complacent, you're in trouble. And you mentioned that you started out in theater and Diary of a Teenage Girl was a play before Mm -hmm. it was a film. Is movie making where you've naturally ended up or was it something of a surprise to you that it was not by design? I will say that I really, truly fell in love with writing. So I had been an actor. I had been working in off Broadway plays and doing theater in regional theaters around the country for many years. And I was frustrated by the types of roles I was getting. I wasn't feeling as like a 28 year old woman like there were a lot of parts that were really calling to my deep, dark, artistic soul. So 
when I came across this book, Diary of a Teenage Girl, I decided I wanted to adapt it and I wanted to play the lead character. That was really the impulse behind it. And as I adapted it into a play, I really fell in love with the process of writing and the fact that I could choose when to do my art, which was a really hard part of being an actor for me, that you had to wait for someone to say, okay, today mm-hmm. you can do your art. Right. I mean, you could act on a street corner if you wanted, but you might get in you trouble. Could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't always work out so well yeah. or at the Thanksgiving dinner table. So I fell in love with the process of writing and I started working with a writing partner and writing screenplays. And that just sort of happened naturally. My husband is a is a director and a, and a writer and had been working in film and TV. And I had always sort of been in the theater world and he had been in the film and TV world. But I found something interesting and challenging about writing screenplays that was exciting to me. And it felt like a more viable industry, honestly, to make a living as a writer. It felt like it's so hard to make a living as a playwright. So there were a lot of considerations that went into it. And then through the process of it, I really did fall in love with filmmaking and writing and the kind of all of the nuance that goes into making movies that most people have no idea about. That's a perfect word. I mean, your films are full of that nuance. And I think that, you know, you see a lot of young emerging directors, you know, your peers who have films at Sundance, and it's all this kind of overabundance of style and mm. camera tricks and, you know, all this kind of gimmickry. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But your films are so, uh, I think, refreshingly straightforward but not without their artistry. Is that sort of more direct approach to filmmaking something you were conscious of choosing, or was it just like how you naturally think of a story or see a story? I think it's how I naturally see a story, which is always from a place of truth. Because what happens when you're making a movie is a million people suggest things to you that you have to say yay or nay to, and whether it's a props person coming in with some beautiful prop or your cinematographer suggesting a shot or whatever it is, For me, it always came down to, does this actually feel true to the story? Does this feel emotionally right? And I think it's really easy to get swept away with style, like you said. And if something feels too cool, I think I always try to check myself and say, it's probably wrong. Mm -hmm. Like if a shot is too fancy, if a shot is too cool, it's probably wrong. Unless it's actually telling your story. Unless it's really, truly necessary for your story. So I always ask myself if something's necessary. That comes probably from a place of like being a scrappy theater maker who can only make decisions based on like distilling something down to the simplest truth that it needs to be in order to tell the story, which is from a place of theater that has no money and very few people. And you have to tell the story sort of in the most in the simplest, cheapest way possible. Efficiency. Efficiency is really important. And so I definitely bring that into my filmmaking. But I think I'm also always just very consciously trying to not choose style or cool over truth. Bringing that to bear on your next project, which you've wrapped on, you're, I think, in the Mm post-production process. How did Mr. Rogers come to you? How did Tom Hanks come to you? What? How did that all emerge? So I'm a mom when I was editing Diary of a Teenage Girl. I got pregnant and I had a baby five weeks before I premiered Diary at Sundance. Wow. And I brought him with me. Two babies birthed into the world. Two babies birthed into the world. That's what I kept saying. My husband found that creepy. But I, I, that's how I felt about it. He was eight weeks when I went to Berlin. It was a really crazy experience to have these two things happening simultaneously. And then figuring out who I was as an artist at the same time I was becoming a mother and figuring out who I was as a mother was really fascinating. 
So I worked on a number of TV shows. I worked on an episode of Transparent. I directed two episodes of Casual. Um, and then I made Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I could feel as I was making all of these projects that, I don't know, my my soul, myself had expanded into new territory as well. And I was thinking a lot about what it was to raise a young man, probably man. I mean, that was his gender assigned at birth, but we'll see. But um, what it is to raise a boy in, in our society. And, and we were watching a lot of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which for people who are not parents – that is the modern day incarnation of Mr. Rogers. The sort of spinoff or something. It's sort yeah, of a yeah. spinoff, an animated spinoff made by the Fred Rogers Company based on the teachings of Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. And it's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, it is the most incredible show for kids because it helps you deal with all of these everyday emotions. And there's an episode to teach them about an election. And there's an episode to teach them about going to the potty. And there's an episode to teach them about any feeling they might experience and death and all of the dark, difficult things that Fred Rogers also helped kids learn about. So meanwhile, I'm watching that show constantly. And the script for this Mr. Rogers movie came my way. And I had known the writers because we had worked on Transparent together. Mm-hmm. And um, it just immediately felt right. I keep joking that Fred Rogers was the one man who could make me make a movie not about women. <laughs> But because um, I really thought uh, I'm only ever going to make movies about women. But there was something about this story about what it is to be a good man and manhood, the way that we don't really let men connect to their feelings in a real meaningful way. And seeing my son go through that and watch him navigate through the world, it just felt important to me, especially in this current Trump era. For whatever reason, it just felt important to me. And I couldn't explain it. But uh, I had to make this movie. And so then I I brought the project to Tom. And he and I had met. He had seen Diary of a Teenage Girl. We had had a meeting many years ago. And we'd had a lot of back and forth about projects that we might want to work on together. Mm-hmm. He had brought me some things. I had brought him some things. And so it was just kind of perfect because the the people who had been involved in this Mr. Rogers movie for years and years had always dreamed about having Tom Hanks be involved. And it had never happened. They had tried and it hadn't happened. And then I brought it to him and he said yes. So it Everybody was like, whoa, how did you do that? (laughs) Um, It was great. And then we just had such an incredible shoot. And Matthew Reese is really the lead of the movie. He plays the journalist who's interviewing Mr. Rogers. And he's just incredible, too. Now, that's two films where one of the lead characters or the focus of the film is based on a real person. Three. Diary was based on a real person, too. Yes, of course. I know. It's so not by design. With someone as memorable and and sort of you know images and film clips yeah. or TV clips of Fre- Fred Rogers or you know Myriad, do you go for like the direct impersonation or is it more just like the spirit of the person? Definitely you know I mean? not the direct impersonation. Yeah. My approach when when making these movies based on real people, which honestly I did not intend to do, <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> is that we can never feel like we're doing a sketch version of this person or we're trying to do an imitation. You know, with Tom Hanks, he doesn't look exactly like Fred Rogers, but there was something energy-wise that was just right, essence-wise. Similarly with Melissa, she really doesn't look that much like Lee, but there is an essence, there is an energy, and it feels so much more important that we get the essence right and that it feels natural and that it feels real and motivated and based in truth than an imitation. And I think if the actors get bogged down in trying to do an imitation, you're in trouble. Because if you're watching them work, 
it's not going to feel real, you're in trouble. So that's never my approach. Yeah, It's always about that feeling like we get the essence right and then it can feel really real and truthful. Yeah, I won't I won't name it, but I just recently saw a movie where the impersonation becomes the whole energy of the movie and you're like, okay, I can right. see every choice and it's that, it's kind of exhausting. For, for yeah. me personally as a viewer, that's too too much yeah. work and it feels too It's like you're watching an acting class or something. You're watching an acting class or you're watching an SNL sketch or you're watching, you know, just a really great impersonator mm-hmm. and you don't get to get lost in the story, and I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Well, I hate to ask you uh, before we we close out here uh, about the future, given that you're <laughs> working on the next <laughs> yeah. thing already. But like, is there a genre or a mode or a some or a or a medium that you want to do in the future that you haven't gotten to do yet? Or I don't know yet. I feel like I'm going to have to see where we go politically as a country and where I am <laughs> right. emotionally in my personal life, because I think you know more than kind of having this carefully traced out career path i'm more i'm kind of trying to constantly check in with my own self and figure out what i want to do and how it how i can have a conversation with the world through whatever i'm making and it um when i made diary of a teenage girl i felt very clear that there was a void of voices that were telling this story of what it was to be a teenage girl what it is to be a sexually curious teenage girl and i felt so it was like it was a conversation with the world that I wanted to scream. And with Can You Ever Forgive Me? Similarly, I felt like, why are we not telling stories about women like this? Why don't we allow characters like this to be seen on our television screens? Why are we obsessed with beauty and youth and a certain type of woman? And we don't let women like this have their due. And I wanted to be having that conversation with the world. And right now the conversation I feel like I want to be having with the world is let's talk about kindness and about our feelings and about our pain because we are in trouble and we are not dealing with these things. So it's going to be kind of what happens next and where we are in the world, I think, more than yeah. my own personal desires. Well, hopefully that means it's going to be a musical and we're all happy and everything. That would be great. Fine. I would yeah. love that. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, I implore people who are listening who have not seen it yet to go see Can You Ever Forgive Me? We all look forward to the Fred Rogers film. Marielle, thank you, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you great. so much. This yeah. was awesome. That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. And we'll also have an episode during the holidays. So don't worry, we're not going anywhere, um, even though things are starting to wind down for the holiday break. Uh, You can find us all at VanityFair.com. There's lots of coverage of the SAG Award nominations there. You can find us all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best ad for our new podcast for children, Little Gold Men Jr., goes to Richard Lawson. Mother, show me the Christian Bale interview again. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>